I'd ask if you would turn your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 8. And we'll continue in our study of this wonderful chapter. Verses 14 through 17 is the text that we'll be looking at this morning. I invite you as well to turn in your bulletin. Notice the outline that's there for you and follow along. Take notes, read the quotes, and enable yourself to study this passage to, to, uh, uh, together. The, uh, the goal, and you, you should know my goal um, as I preach, my goal is be faithful to the text, and which means my, my hope is not that you leave here inspired, but that you leave here with a, a better grasp upon this text. And uh, um, so that's what those notes are for, to help you follow along, take notes, and uh, hopefully fellowship with the Lord as we understand his word uh, together. This is God's word, brothers and sisters, the word of an awesome God, an awesome king. And in the old days, in the Bible days, when God's word was read, they stood out of reverence and respect. Think of Nehemiah. Let me invite you to, uh, to stand together with me out of reverence and respect as we read God's holy word. <clears throat> Hear now the word of our king. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, what a delight and joy it is for us to bow before you now as we anticipate this exalted privilege of fellowshipping with you around your word. God, we pray that you would indeed send forth your spirit to rest heavily upon us, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear, illumine our hearts, open our minds, remove the scales that we might come to your word this day and read and and fellowship with you. So Lord, we pray. Nothing less for unction, both from the pulpit, for, those, for us as we listen. Lord, give us unction and power that we might fellowship with you and be responsive to your word this day. Grant this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. As you know, we currently are studying a chapter that describes the, the benefits that come from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's chapter 8. And we're on the fifth benefit this morning, the benefit being sonship. Notice verse 14. It says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. That expression, sons of God, denotes a a, a relationship with God, um, which was foreign to the Jewish people of the Old Testament, even in the New Testament era. For them, the, the idea of the fatherhood of God was a vague notion. They recognize it. Isaiah 9, 6 calls God an eternal father. So they recognize that God's a, f- a father. But for them, it was a vague notion. It was far off. None of them, no Jew as a Jew in the Old Covenant and in the New, a Jew as a Jew, not as a redeemed individual, but a Jew holding the Jewish mindset from their, their fathers, would have followed Christ's instruction in the Lord's Prayer when he said, pray in this manner, our Father who art in heaven. They would have thought that was too familiar. That's too intimate. You don't pray like that. That's to bring God too far down. 
For them, the fatherhood of God was that vague notion. Brothers and sisters, sadly, in spite of our creeds, in spite of our Bible study, in spite of what you and I might say and might profess to other people, God's fatherhood in your life remains a vague notion. For most Christians, it's a vague notion. Years ago, Jack Miller made the comment, the observation that most, uh, uh, most people in the body of Jesus Christ relate to God not as sons and daughters of God Most High, but as orphans. Orphans. I remember reading that going, interesting, what does it mean? Well, follow along uh, with me. In this last month, we've, we, we, we know there have been many children orphaned by the conflict in U- Ukraine. You can imagine, you and I can well imagine what their lives, what the struggles that are going on in their lives. The first thing would be certainly a struggle when it comes to security, right? I mean, where's their next meal going to come from? Who's watching out for them? This person is eight years old, lost both mom and dad. Who's going to feed this person? And will that source of food continue on? And when the war's over, who who are they going to live with? Everyone's gone, but them, what orphanage are they going to be placed in? And how long will they, be, will they stay there? And who will be the people seeing them, overseeing them? Issues of security, no doubt. Then you'd have issues of trust. I mean, brothers and sisters, who's going to love them more than their mom and dad? What adult is going to love them as much as their mom and dad love them? And yet those very same ones who love them like no one else could, or perhaps even would other than God, those parents at the beginning of the conflict said, hey, honey, guys, don't worry, don't, don't cry, everything's going to be okay. We'll be good, we'll be fine. Those parents are dead. Can they trust another adult? Trust will always be an issue. And then you've got issues of self-perception. We tend to, by our, our sin nature, we tend to define ourselves by what happens to ourselves. Right? If you have a great job and you drive a great car, you drive around as if you're something better than you should be, than you really are. And if you don't have a great car and you, you're homeless or whatever, you, you think of yourself as this. Imagine those orphan children, how they must think of themselves and the temptation that will be the rest of their lives as they think of themselves. I'm a loser. I'm a broken person. I'm a failure. Brothers and sisters, those are the thoughts and the struggles of an orphan. And I dare say that those are, for many of us here today, those are the struggles you have with God today. And in in fact, an entire Christian counseling model has arisen revolving around those three things. Significance, security, and trust. We struggle with those things in our walks with God. Do you trust God? You know, God, this just happened and it was hard. What's going to happen next? Is God really, does God really have your best interests at heart? Are you really the, the object of God's love and devotion? Really? Do you think God really does love you like you proclaim, you profess in our doctrinal creeds? Or when you sin, how do you feel? Do you feel dirty? Do you feel distant? Do you feel God is up there looking upon you with this, this, this bony finger judging you? Security. What's the future hold? 
right? I mean, how, how many of you have been quaked in, in, by, by all the stuff that's gone on in just the last 24 months? It's amazing. The fatherhood of God, the fact that we are sons and daughters of God Most High, that should be, that is a birthright, brothers and sisters. This text says that it is one of the benefits that belongs to every single one of us in Christ this day. But of all of the benefits that we've seen, I think as we go on, we, we see that these are building, right? The first benefit, no condemnation, leads to the next benefit, which is fellowship with God, which leads to, uh, to, uh, to the next. Brothers and sisters, this is a big one. This is one that has been attacked clearly by your, your flesh, your sin, Satan, demons, name it. Yes, we're sons, but we don't live like it. Boy, do we not live like sons this day. And that's why a passage like this is so important for you and I. You and I are are going to have the tendency to judge God by what happens in our lives, right? That's the problem of Job. Job judged God by what happened in his life. When things happened bad and he had changed nothing in his relationship with God, therefore God must have changed, therefore God must be bad. So he's judging God based upon what was going on in his life. We do the same thing when it comes to being sons and daughters of God. We judge God by what happens. We, by, we, we judge God by our fathers, our parents. And we go, that is, if that's what God, a man will tell you what, I want nothing to do with this God. Brothers and sisters, your obligation, my obligation, is to allow God to speak for himself and then take at face value what he says about himself and not allow the things of this world to judge him by that, right? So this morning, I want to encourage you freshly, anew, as we look at this passage together, allow it to determine what it means for you and I to profess that we are sons and daughters of God Most High. This is the fifth benefit that comes from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Sons and daughters of God Most High. First, would you notice with me the recipients of this uh, declaration? Those who God treats as sons and daughters. Notice with me verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God these are sons of God. All right, so who are the sons of God? Based on this text, those who are led by the Spirit. Now, if you've been with us, you know, last week, notice with me verse 13, we talked about if, uh, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Living and dying there was not heaven and hell. Living and dying there was reaping life or death in our bodies, in our, in our lives. And there we talked about being Spirit-filled. Remember that? The word filled is a maritime word in Ephesians that is, describes the wind that fills the sail and drives the, the ship. To be spirit-filled is that this, with the Spirit of God, and we saw that the Word of God is, is the means by which the Spirit of God does it, um, drive us in our lives. And we know that, therefore, being spirit-filled is not something that every one of us are. At there are times in our lives we're not spirit-filled. There are times in our lives that we are, we are, we are flesh-filled and not spirit-filled. Well, because of that, when we come to verse 14, it's easy to read that over and conclude that all who are being led by the Spirit of God, optional, those who are being led by the Spirit of God are the same as those who are being filled by the Spirit, and those being filled by the Spirit are those who are responding in obedience to the Spirit's leading, to the Word of God. So all being led by the Spirit, all who are obeying God, these are the sons of God. It's easy for us to conclude, therefore, that while my position as God's son or daughter may not change, my experience of of being a son does. And that experience is predicated based upon if I obey God. And hence, every one of us here has struggles when it comes to the idea of sonship. 
daughtership, the fatherhood of God. Why? Because we root it to our conduct. Right? We're just like the prodigal son who, uh, after he sinned his great sin and lived the way he lived, what did he say? He said, I will get up, go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Brothers and sisters, you and I do that all the time. We think sonship is something that our obedience, or lack thereof, violates. And so we say, man, I'm a horrible, I've done these horrible things. I know I'm a sinner. I know I fall short. How could that God ever accept me? He couldn't unless I clean my life up. And quite frankly, my life hasn't been cleaned up enough. So right now there's a distance in my walk with God. There's this, there's this element in me where, where, I, where I, I, I veer away from prayer. I veer away from fellowship. Oh yeah, I'll go to church, but boy, the songs, the prayers will all seem distant. Why? Because I've sinned. Brothers and sisters, if that is your view, you are misunderstanding this text. The word being led by the Spirit is not the same as being filled by the Spirit. Okay? Filled by, if you want to go ahead in your, in your Bibles to Galatians, there won't be a slide on this verse, but Galatians chapter 5, you, can, you and I will read in verse 18 that there's a distinction being made between walking by the Spirit in verse 16. I say walk by the Spirit. That's the same as being Spirit-filled. Okay, that, that's the practical ramifications, the consequences of being led by the Spirit. Notice with me verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. It's not being a law to be saved, brothers and sisters. If you're led by the Spirit, you're saved. That's what that text says. So when we come to our text in verse 14, all being led by the Spirit of God, that is not optional. If you're saved, if you have, if you're, if, if you've been a beneficiary of the redeeming grace of the cross of Jesus Christ, you not only have no condemnation, you not only have fellowship with God, you have a transformed life, you have a new uh, priority, but get this, and this is inviolable. You are a son or daughter of God that will never change. Do you understand that? You need to understand that. You and I need to write in bold letters if it's not there. You and I, as our, our sonship, our daughtership, what do you want to say, is inviolable. It'll never change. We are, once you are saved, you become a son or daughter of God Most High. That will never change. And um, Now you say, great, why are you making such a big deal? Got it. Okay, because I think, honestly, practically, we think it does. We're ju- and and that, I get that from the parable. I mean, how many of you have done that? You know, Lord... I'm coming back, but I don't dare come back as a son or daughter. I'm coming back as a hired man. Brothers and sisters, you dethrone, you remove your status as son or daughter of God. God doesn't. You are always viewed as his son and daughter. The moment you were redeemed, from that point on, you will always be forevermore for eternity a son or daughter of God most high. That can never change. That will never change. It's a birthright. Listen to John 17, or John 1, 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Do you understand what that means? That means a legal right. 
Many who received him, if, you, if you're trying to receive is, is to describe a faith act. If you rely upon Christ alone for salvation, guess what? You have a legal right conferred upon you that can never be lost by God. And that is the right of sonship. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You can't miss it, brothers and sisters. If you are saved by the grace of Christ this day, then you, I don't care what you've done, what you think, where you've been, or where you're going on this life, you are son or daughter of God Most High, and that can never change. That will never change. Now, take that, please. Take that by, by faith. Take that you see it in Scripture. It's black and white. You can't miss it. That's why Christ taught us to pray how? Our Father. Okay? Think about that. When, when, when the disciples came and said, Lord, teach us how to pray, he began with this incredible um, life-changing direction. And that is this. Pray our Father. That is for the rest of eternity. Brothers and sisters, when you're in sin, what do you pray? When you've fallen again, when you've committed the same sin that you continue to commit over and over and you've sinned for the last time, you go, how could God ever love me? What are you to pray? Our Father. That will never change. Okay, hopefully you've got that. All right, if that's true then, notice with me, by definition... The consequence of God being your father and you and I being sons. If you're led by the Spirit, the, uh, these are sons of God. If you're a son or daughter of God, what are four, this text gives us four uh, um, um, uh, privileges, consequences, which means this, brothers and sisters, everything you read here, you've got to read as if it's for the first time. You can't, you can't read these and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Read them because you, what you and I do is, again, we take what happens in their lives, maybe a bad father we had or whatever it might be, a bad authority, and we impute that upon God. No, no, no. If you take it from face value, you are a son or a daughter of God the moment that you're saved, that'll never change. What are the practical, biblically benefits, consequences of that status? What are they? First one, freedom from fear. Notice with me verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Interesting choice of word. A spirit of slavery leading to fear. That's significant because in Paul's day, Rome primarily ruled by slaves. In fact, to do away with the slave and the Roman economic system would completely collapse. Rome was, was, was driven, run by slaves. It was that common. And, um, but in Rome, unlike Old Testament slavery, in Rome, slavery in Rome was much like the antebellum south of slavery where the owner had absolute power and the slave had absolutely no power. You could be in a family and be completely separated. You, if your slave family or if you're the family of which you're a slave in was short on money and food, you'd go starving. You couldn't do anything about it. I mean, you couldn't go. go it, there was, you had no rights, no uh, privileges, nothing except what your owner chose to give you, which you could take away as he wanted to. Um, you got a quote there, J.B. Lightfoot. 
This is from a commentary on Philemon. Philemon was a slave owner. Onesimus ran as a, one of his slaves. And uh, <clears throat> this is what he wrote. Roman law practically imposed no limits to the power of the master over his slave. Thus, the alternative of life or death rested solely with uh, Philemon, his owner, and slaves were constantly crucified for far lighter offenses than running away. Okay, because of that, in Rome, slave was synonymous with fear. Paul says, when God redeemed you, made you a son and a daughter. And you know what happens because now you're a son and a daughter? Slavish fear is gone. Fear of the unknown. Fear of wrath. Fear of a petty slave owner who, who woke up one day and said, Nah, I'm bored. Let's kill that slave. Fear of any of that is gone. You did not receive a spirit of fear leading to slavery, brothers and sisters. That is not what you and I received. Rather, notice how the text ends. But you have received the spirit of what? Adoption is sons. Now, this is a massive word in the Pauline vocabulary. Okay? The word adoption is not in the Hebrew. There, if, you, if you look up in Strong's or whatever concordance you use in the English and look up the word adopted or adoption, you'll find the word in the Old Testament. But the Hebrew behind it is typically grasp or seize. So it talks about a king adopting this, or not a person, but adopting this or adopting that. It's how the Hebrew means to seize it, to grab it, to take hold of it, to take control of it. Hebrew doesn't have a word for adoption in the Bible. Okay, it is a word that is never used by any other biblical writer than Paul, and it's never used of God's people except by Paul. And that, because of that, it is believed by scholars, Bible scholars, that when we think about the word adoption, unlike almost any other word Paul uses, Paul's a Jew, right? So because he's a Jew, when you think of the word he uses in the Greek, you have to go back to the Hebrew thinking he's a Jew. He's using that word the same way a Hebrew would use the word, right? So you go back, and you and so our exegesis, when we study a text, is always not what's the secular Greek say, but what's this concept in the Hebrew say first and foremost? Then what does it mean in the current Greek? Okay, right? Um, in this case, we have no Hebrew antecedent. So the only thing we've got to define adoption is Roman adoption. Most biblical scholars believe that's exactly what Paul has in mind here. Let me give you three of the facets of, of, of Roman adoption, the laws. Uh, because ado- because um, um, uh, in a, a typical Roman uh, culture to be adopted, it was a massive thing. It had uh, defined steps. The first step uh, severed their legal or social relationship from their slave or natural family. Get that. It severed a legal relationship. Do you understand if you're, if you're not saved, you have a legal relationship with Satan. Satan owns you. If you're not saved, you say what you want. Right? Non- non-believers say, oh, I'm my own man. You are not your own man. It's very clear in Scripture. You're bound by what Satan wants. And what he wants is what is, well, a lot of things, right? So you're bound by him. So there's a legal relationship that you've got. The wage of sin is legally death. So you live and you dwell and you function in death. So for the first thing that happens is a legal relationship is severed. And how do you suppose God severs that legal relationship? How does that happen? Say a word uh, quickly. Say it. I, that actually, I, that's not a rhetorical. How does God sever that, that legal relationship that you and I had with death? 
Christ died in our place. Okay, Christ took our legal relationship. Okay, so that is firstly uh, severed. Secondly, step is we are placed permanently in the new family where he is granted full legal rights and privileges of sonship in that family. So not only are your legal responsibilities, debts, everything from your previous life gone, but when Roman adopt, in Rome, when you were adopted, all that's gone, but now you become a legal heir of that home. And do you understand what that means? The moment that you became a legal heir, you could denounce your dad. And legally, he could do nothing about it. Legally, it was, a, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was bigger than you. It was outside of you. If you adopted a person or you were adopted into that family, you became a legal heir, which went above and beyond the rights of that father. Okay? And then thirdly, if you were a slave and you were redeemed or adopted as a slave, you would be set free and granted the rights and privileges of Roman citizenship. Incredible. So that is what happened in a Roman system. And thus, um, a lot of uh, upper class, and common Romans didn't do this, but upper class, a lot of upper class people adopted. And the moment they adopted, in our culture, we have a distinction between a true born and an adopted, right? Um, people will make that di- distinction. Yes, I, I am the true born, and this is my adopted brother, whatever you might say. And I, no one would do that. We would, this is my uh, brother. But push comes to, to shove. Our culture says, you know what? You're adopted, and people have struggles with that, right? The reality in Rome, that would never happen because it was a legal standing. Do you understand that? It it wasn't, first and foremost, a familial standing. It was a legal standing. And it meant that you you were privy to all the rights and responsibilities and privileges that came from that family. It was huge. So when Paul uses this to refer to what God does in redemption, it's life-changing. First and foremost, would you notice, it's freedom from fear by which you and I no longer should ever, ever fear the future, fear what your dad could or could not do. Do you understand God is obligated to redeem you? Or better yet, he's already redeemed you. Obligated to glorify you. He can do nothing else. He's obligated. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1. It's not in your notes. I'm just going to read it. Ephesians chapter 1. You know the text. In Christ, also after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with him in the Holy Spirit of promise, who the Holy Spirit was given as a down payment of our inheritance. We're going to come back and reference this at the very end. With a view to the redemption of God's own uh, possession. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit has been, has been given to you. This is, a, this is um, finance. Has been given to you as a down payment. Therefore, there's an obligation. God obligated himself by giving you that spirit to bring you to the end. To save you. To redeem you. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So first and foremost, we have freedom from, from fear. What's the thing you and I fear? What's going to happen? You know, I've sinned. Yikes, what's he going to do? What's, could God, because I've sinned so bad, could God take a child? Take my health? I cannot tell you how many people in the, over 30 years of ministry I have ministered to who have expressed to me fear that, they, what, that what they're suffering right now is because of their sin. 
You know, my fear, the first funeral, a 26-year-old whippersnapper out of seminary, first funeral I ever did, that's what I was greeted with at the hospital when, uh, with this, this, this man's dying, dead wife. He came to me as we went to go see her. Greg, pray for me because I'm, I believe this is my fault. I'm not worthy of such a woman. This is what I was doing before she was killed. You know what he was doing? He was angry because she was late. So he said, I'm not worthy of a woman like this. God took her to punish me. Brothers and sisters, do you fear that? Gone. Sonship takes all your fears of what God might do or could do out of the way. Because he's your dad. He'll never mistreat you. He'll never treat you wrong. He's your dad. Secondly, intimacy with God. You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now I referenced this at the very beginning. Jews had a problem with the word Father. You would not start a prayer with our Father who are in heaven. Brothers and sisters, Abba Fathers, is that on steroids? Okay? If, if you've got a problem praying because it's too familiar and too intimate, our Father. Imagine what it's, what it's like to say, Abba Father. You know Abba is, is the word used by babies, one of the first words they speak, Mama, Dad, Dad, right? Well, in, Hebrew, in the Aramaic, Abba was Father. So I've got a quote there from Shrek, Shrek, not Shrek, okay. (laughs) This isn't Shrek, Shrek. Uh, He wrote, in every day, infant sound is applied without inhibition to God. This basic word tells us that God is not a distant ruler in transcendence, but one who is intimately close. Brothers and sisters, if father is a problem, and I know it's not to you, but a problem where what would Abba Father be? Understand this. You're taking our Father, what you're supposed to prayer, and you're, you're bringing it to the next level. So you could translate this just last week. Was it last week, Ken? You were telling me this. You know, he heard a sermon. The guy was saying, Abba Father, you could translate that dearest Father. Loving Father. My dearest, my most wonderful, gloriously Dad. I love you. Notice, intimacy with God. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to see this is without condition, this intimacy. Let me run through a mental exercise with you. This is where I went when I was working on my sermon this week, so I'm going to share it with you. Okay, when a person becomes a Christian, how much of their sin do they confess? How much of their sin do they repent of? Answer is all of them, right? All that they know, really. It's not all of them. It's all that they know. So when I became a Christian, when I was 18, well, whatever sins in my life, I was like, Lord, I, I'm, I, I'm, I know I'm guilty, and I, I renounce them, and I turn from them to you. Every sin that I knew of, I confessed, I turned uh, to God. But those weren't all my sins. You and I both know that the more you grow in your walk with God, what's going to happen? Two things. You're going to grow in a greater apprehension of who your God is, and you're also going to grow in a greater apprehension of who you are. Calvin himself, I love this quote. The end of all theological pursuit is knowing God and knowing self. Okay, as you and I grow, we grow in our understanding of who God is, how great he is. Man, I thought he was holy. Whoa, do I see that he's holy. But you also grow in your apprehension of your sin and who you are. See this in Paul, right? Paul, shortly after he was saved, he wrote in 1 Corinthians, um, I am the least of the apostles. Then five years later, as he grew in his walk, 
He made that, this uh, confession in Ephesians. I'm the least of all saints. Interesting. He went from being the least of the apostles to the least of all saints. You know what? Of all the Christians I know, I'm the wretched, most wretched of them all. I am. I, I, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I know my heart. My heart is in rebellion against God. Read Romans 7, 14 and following. Man, things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. This is me. I am the least of all saints. I am the biggest sinner that there is of all saints. And then just a couple years after that, 1 Timothy, he wrote, he's the foremost of sinners. Do you know what that means? He's done with comparing himself to Christians. He's like, after walking with God now in a couple more years, I realize I've never met a greater sinner than me. Compared Every non-Christian I've ever met, I'm a worse sinner than them. Now, brothers and sisters, you might think that Paul was going through this crisis of faith. He wasn't. That's the route of growth in grace. You grow in your understanding of your sin. You grow in your understanding of your sinfulness. But as you grow in your understanding of your sinfulness, you also grow in your apprehension of the glory and greatness of God, which involves a growing in your apprehension of the grace of God and the kindness of God and the mercies of God and that, that God covered even that sin. Guys, if I'm the worst of all sinners... And I'm a child of the living God. That means God covered even those sins. Amazing. Brothers and sisters, as I was meditating upon this in my own life, I realized I can't help but to wonder if if most Christians go through life knowing maybe 1% of their sin. Because don't forget, when you go to glory and you're going to continue to grow in your apprehension of the greatness of God and the apprehension of how great your sin was on this side of the grave. You're going to go, whoa, I can't believe God forgave. After seeing that and he forgave that, whoa, we'll continue to growing in our amazement and glory and honor and reverence over this being so kind and gracious to forgive such a sinner like you and me. One percent, maybe a godly person, a really godly person, they might know two percent of their sin. Now, if that's true, when, they, when I professed my faith in Jesus Christ and God made me his child, I was adopted into his family, I believe God forgave all my sin, all the sin that I knew of, and maybe even more sin. But you know what happens in our walks with God? We, live, we walk with God long enough and we sin the same sin enough times that we begin to believe that, what, what's, that wow, something new is revealed. I am far worse than Jesus Christ God could have ever imagined. And therefore, I'm such a sinner, I'm running from God. Yeah, I know, I heard a sermon about sonship. I'll never lose his sonship. But I'm telling you what, man, I'm running from God because I don't feel comfortable coming before God because of what I've just done. Brothers and sisters, look at the text. Intimacy with God is what you forever will have. These are not conditioned by your sin if you are a son or god son or daughter of god all of these come to you at every moment of your life everywhere you are no matter what you're doing no matter what you've said or done these are not conditioned so if you're a son or daughter of god you've got intimacy with god and yes everything within you rightly wants to run because of your sin that's natural and that's good. That means you've got a conscience that's functioning. That's a good thing. But now speak to your conscience, the word of God. 
I want to run, but I'm a son of God. And that means God is my, is my father. You know what? Being a parent, many of you are, know this. Those of you who are parents, who are grandparents, who are aunts and uncles. Being a parent means having your children come and confess to you some incredibly dark things. And I praise God and I pray that, to God that God gives me a relationship with my kids that they can come to me and confess whatever they're struggling with and they will not receive a dour look. Right? That's what we want. That's good. You'd say, that's good parenting. Right? What kind of a dad is it? His child comes to dad, I'm struggling with this. Get out of my sight. You and I would agree that is a bad dad. But we would all agree a great father is a father who, if a kid came to him and said, Dad, I'm struggling with this horrible sin. I'm so tainted. I'm so horrible. That dad would give him a big hug and say, Son, you still bear my name. Let me help you. We'd all agree with that, right? That's what you got in God. Stop fighting it. Stop making different rules and standards that you've got to meet for God to, to condescend and love you. Because all you're doing is defaming the gospel. A son or a daughter of God has intimacy with God. They have no fear. Notice with me thirdly. They've got assurance. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Brothers and sisters, it's a bad translation. As uh, Cranfield wrote, you've got the quote there. What standing has our spirit in this matter? The Spirit bears witness with our spirit? You know, yeah, I profess faith in Jesus Christ and my spirit says, I'm redeemed. I don't care what I do. And the Spirit comes along and says, well, amen. Amen to that, Greg. You know, that's not what happens. The text literally is the Spirit bears witness to our spirit. Because we have no standing in the matter here. Now, how does he do that? There's a lot of talk about that in redemptive history. If you want to look at some, in just in, in um, Puritan history, reform, Reformation history, a lot of answers to that question, how does he do it? But you know what? Every answer agrees with this statement he does it by and through his word how else he does it he does it by and with his word let me give you an example parable of the prodigal this child you know the story the younger son wants to sow his oats says dad give me the money that is mine upon your death and you may or may not know this but in that parable for the uh, dad to honor that request he had to, he had to liquidate his farm which was allowed. It was a provision in Jewish culture that you could, own, you could sell your farm, but you'd stay there until you died. So he sold his farm and gave his, uh, uh, that, that amount that legally was his son's to his son. And that boy went to as far, the way that the Greek reads, he went as far as he dared to go. He didn't go to a far and distant land. He went as far as, he, he wanted to get away from his dad. He couldn't stand his dad. He went as far as he could go. And there he spent his money, and as long as he had money to spend, he had friends. And the moment his money ran out, his friends ran out, and he was in need for a severe famine came upon that land. And what's he going to do as a Jew? He sold himself out to feed pigs, and he longed for the food the pigs were eating. So he lived in a land where pigs were more important than a Jewish man. So he's there, and he comes to his senses. You know the story. He's there slopping the pigs, and one day he comes to his senses, and he realizes, good night. The hired men, the slaves of my father's farm are better fed and treated than I'm being treated here. I'm going to go back to my dad and I'm going to go back not as a son because I've lost that. I'm going to go back as a hired man. I, you know, I read that. I'm going to go back and say, Lord, I'm, or, Dad, I'm no longer worthy. Make me a slave. 
okay? And he had this whole planned confession. If you read Luke 15, man, I'm going to go there. I'm going to say these words. You can just see it, right? I'm going to say these words, and I'm going to say it here, and I'm going to stand like this, or I'm going to stand like this, whatever. He had it scripted, and he goes to his dad, and he says, and his dad, the way the Greek reads, has been looking for him. So we have this in the Greek, or in, the, in our, not Greek, in the, our language, there's a song I heard as a baby Christian where the father's on the, on, the, on the porch of his house looking out, scanning the horizon, looking for the sun. And there he was, and he ran to his son. That is not the way it reads. The way it reads is his dad's out looking for him. He's, he's going to get his son. So he sees his son, and he runs to his son, which is not dignified in that day, but it doesn't matter. He runs to his son, and his son gets a part, only a part of his scripted, confession out before his dad breaks in he's not listening to it brothers and sisters i love this this is a son in sin and the dad will not let his son confess his sin instead we read this but the father said to his slaves the but there is a big but okay big adversative in the middle of the the confession the father interjects quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him That's his status symbol. And that day, in essence, what he was saying to his son, you are no slave, you are my son. This is the same idea that what uh, uh, Jacob did with Joseph, right? The coat of many colors. Okay, so that's what this was. Put the coat upon him. So this is you. I want you to think, this is you and your sin. (laughs) What does God do when you, when you go, God? What's he do? He stops immediately and says to everyone, put the best robe upon this child because this, this child is not a slave. This child isn't what this child thinks he is. This child is my son or daughter. Secondly, put a ring on his hand. It's a signet ring of authority. You've got authority in my household. Thirdly, put sandals on his feet. The significance of sandals that slaves didn't wear shoes. So to put sandals on his feet was to say, you're no slave. And fourthly, kill the fattened calf. The significance of that is that Jews didn't eat fattened calves. That, that was a, for dignitaries, the most important people who'd visit you. Then you always have this calf to kill. So, that, so like in the old days, what, in the, in the uh, 70s, you know, 60s, when, when these you know, cookies came out that you can buy and put on your shelf, a lot of 60s and 70s households would always buy, because we didn't have cookies a lot. Growing up, they're too expensive, but you'd have cookies in the, in the, in the cupboard. So if someone, came, uh, you know, a guest came by unawares, you'd have cookies to serve, right? That's what the fattened calf was. Kill the fattened calf. Why? Because there's no one more important in all the world than my son. Brothers and sisters, is that assurance? Well, I'll tell you what, that's assurance. Let the Spirit of God testify to your spirit this day via Luke chapter 15. When you confess or when you have uh, confessed your sin and became a child of the living God whether from the womb or in my life at the age of 18 guess what brothers and sisters we will never lose that standing notice with me fourthly an inheritance and and if children heirs also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ generally speaking this is uh, what's an heir an heir is someone who receives the property of another upon the other person's death but in the context of Judaism, it was much more than that. It was two things. 
in the context of the covenant of grace, it was two things. One, it was the promised land. The promised land was the, was the epitome of all the promises that God gave. We know that because the promised land was not the physical ge- geography of the Palestine. It was Hebrews 10, Hebrews 11. It was the new heavens, new earth, right? So when we read, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Or we read in Matthew 25, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared. He's not talking about the promise, the physical dimensions. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. Would you notice with me, verse 17, if heirs also, we are heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ. Do you know what the book of Revelation is? It's a seven sealed scroll. It's the form of a title, a deed, a will, a testament. So it's the will and testament of Jesus Christ claiming all of, all of the world as God's own. And we get to, what to say? We are fellow heirs with Christ. So not only are you, are you, a, um, you know, no fear, intimacy, assurance, you've got inheritance, but that's not the half of it. Would you notice the very beginning of verse 17, if a child heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, heirs of God. What does that mean? I don't have time. But you know the greatest blessing you and I are going to get in eternity? It's not, a, it's not the new heavens and new earth. It's God. It's Christ. He's our inheritance. And that's what we get. The moment you profess faith in Christ, the moment you were saved out of the womb, whatever, you uh, received no fear, intimacy, assurance, and inheritance. Now, I've got to wrap this up. We're almost, we are, I'm, I'm over, I realize. So I'm going to do this last point very quickly because I don't want to come back and pick it up. Okay? That's what it means to be a son or daughter of God. Let this define what sonship means in your world. Stop allowing your experience or what you've seen or what you've heard be that which you, governs your view of God's sonship or God's fatherhood and your sonship. Understand it from this text. That is what you've got. Unchangeable. Unyielding forever. Now, because of that, would you notice with me last 17b, the calling. Now, I'm going to set this up as quick as I can. What is the one thing in your experience that makes you doubt your standing before God? And don't say your sin outside of you. What's the one thing that makes you question God's fatherhood in you? God's fatherly intentions in your life. What's the one thing? Trial. Difficulty. Cancer. Loss of a job. Death of a loved one. God, I thought, right? I thought you cared. Notice how this ends. If heirs, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed that's too weak, we, we should translate that, if as, uh, as is the case, we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Brothers, do you understand? Paul understood that the thing that will make your people, God's people, struggle more with this, the being sons and daughters of God and que- calling the question, not even their sin. Hopefully you can take by faith what you just saw here and go, amen, God, I'm, gonna, I'm done trying to make it up. I'm just going to go to you, God, knowing that you're my father. Intimacy, fellowship, the whole bit. But the one thing that will be a, a bump in your road will be trial. And you'll go, God, I thought you loved me. I thought you cared for me. Brothers and sisters, look at that text. Since indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you understand with him? Do you understand what that means? See, you and I have this 
false, this falsity. We we have misunderstood this. We think that if God saved us, there should no longer be any sorrow, mourning, sickness, sadness, grief, maybe even death. And that's correct. Revelation 21 and the new heavens, new earth, that is where we're going. But that is not where we are on this side of the grave. This side of the grave is a state of sin and misery. So on this side of the grave, all temptation, no man undergoes a trial except that which is common to mankind. All of us go through trial. Hear this. You've heard this now many times. Hear this again. Every one of us go through trial. It's not unique to Christians. Stop acting like a lost job, cancer, a lost child, a lost loved one, a lost parent, a tragedy is unique to being a Christian such that you go, oh, if God were a good God, he wouldn't have had this happen. That's crazy. That literally, brothers and sisters, is if you think about biblical truth, that's crazy. We live in a state of sin and misery. And then to boot, get this. How did God bring about your redemption? How did he do it? How did he do it, brothers? Well, through Jesus Christ. How did he do it? Through Christ's suffering. Do you understand what God is doing, how God redeems in this era? By suffering. He, He came and suffered for us. So guess how you and I... Guess what being a son or daughter of God does to now all suffering and difficulty in life? It transforms it. It transforms it to something that every Christian, every person, not Christian, every person suffers. It transforms it to a glorious privilege as Christians. To ne- for now, it's with Christ. It's for Christ. It's with Christ. Do you understand that? In other words, because you're a son or daughter, you go, I'm not going to suffer. You got it all wrong. Because you're a son or daughter, you're going to suffer like everybody else. But the difference is Christ will be with you. And you will be suffering for God. Non-believers suffer. Who do they suffer for? Naaman. But now we have a purpose behind our suffering. All of it. Generic as it may be, because we're sons and daughters of God, is for God. Incredible. Okay, let me, let, me, let me close with these thoughts. Before I got married, I washed the bathroom. Before I got married, I made the bed. I'm an I'm a A-type personality. I love perpendicular and parallel. Don't mind dust, but I love perpendicular and parallel. So my room was perpendicular and parallel. Everything had its place. It was spotless. That was my life. So I was constantly cleaning. I love cleaning. I was constantly cleaning. Before I got married. But you know what happened once, when I, once I got married? I no longer cleaned for myself. I cleaned for my wife. I'm doing this for her. I love cleaning. But it gave, it gave it a new purpose. I'm doing this for her. I'm cleaning the kitchen. For, I want to bless her. I'm doing... All of a sudden, there's this otherness about me. Now, on steroids, brothers and sisters, that's what this text is saying about suffering. Before you were saved, everyone suffers. You know, tell me something I don't know. I lost my job. Welcome to the club. Okay? But, brothers and sisters, as a Christian, you didn't just lose your job. I took a bullet for the Lord. This is for Him. This is a trophy for Him. You get to do that now. 
It's for Him. Non-believers suffer too. But now, for us, it's with Christ, for Christ, unto Christ, for Him. And why do you do it? Because I'm an honored child. If God said, who will, I, who will go? Whom shall I send to go and suffer this suffering? Who would here not say, send me? We'd all do it. And if you did it knowing that you said that, you'd do it with a sense of nobility and confidence because God's behind this. God's with me and God's calling me. It's noble. Brothers and sisters, don't let suffering uh, ruin your composure. Let suffering be an opportunity to live out sonship. God, I feel like garbage today, but this is for you. You're willing to die on the cross for me. God, this is for you. Take it for your glory. I don't know how you're going to use it. This is for you. Brothers and sisters, that's the culmination of sonship. Now, there's an end game, 17b. We may also glorify with them. See that last phrase? If children, heirs and heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer, as indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with him, we can leave that because the next benefit picks up on that thought. So brothers and sisters, Ah, we're over. We are sons and daughters of God most high. May you and I rejoice and glorify in that designation, in that relationship, in that right. The right as sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible privilege. There's so much more of no doubt could be said about this, but Lord, we look at this text, this little text, and in my folly as a preacher... Lord, I pray I haven't messed it up. God, I pray that you take this Holy Spirit and give us a responsiveness to it, that you would open our hearts and give us that sense of purpose and that sense of conviction that comes from knowing that we have a God who is our Father. God, give us that, we pray. May our understanding of this come from your word, not from experience. And may you therefore give us the grace as your people to walk humbly with you, our God because we know you walk humbly with us. Father, thank you. We give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's go.